Blog Talk Radio. If I ever do anything right, I want to be so good to this little light. If I ever wake in the night, I want to know I tried my best for this little Progressive Parenting Radio is a production of Progressive Parenting Network and GinaKirby.com. No material on this radio program should be considered medical advice. This is a listener-funded program. And now, your host, Gina Kirby. Being a parent is the hardest job you'll ever have. Progressive Parenting understands this, and we want you to know that you are not alone. My name is Gina Kirby, and I am your humble host. I am not a parenting expert, but as a doula, childbirth educator, literally get a national breastfeeding peer counselor, and concerned parent of four children ages 12 years old through 19 months, I understand the difficulties involved with parenthood. So I'll be inviting doctors, nurses, family workers, authors, and experts from different fields to answer your parenting questions. Because this is a progressive talk show, we will broach topics and air opinions that you as a parent might not otherwise hear about through the mainstream media. The mission of progressive parenting is to inform, not to preach, to share, not advise, and to connect, not alienate. Progressive Parenting Radio is a listener-funded program. If you enjoy the information we bring you, please consider donating at ProgressiveParentingRadio.com. We have been broadcasting for over nine years, bringing quality information to listeners like you. We'd like to thank our listeners and our sponsors for supporting our mission to bring great information. The number to call in during the program is 347-850-1642. Again, that number is 347-850-1642. If you would like to ask a question live on the air or make a comment, please press 1 and it will alert our producer that you have something to say. I am super excited about my guest today and about our topic. My guest is Kathleen Kendall Tackett. She is a health psychologist and international board certified lactation consultant. She's the owner and editor-in-chief of Proclaris Press, a small press specializing in women's health. Dr. Kendall Tackett is a research associate at the Crimes Against Children Research Center at the University of New Hampshire, and clinical associate professor of pediatrics at Texas Tech University School of Medicine in Amarillo, Texas. She's a fellow of the American Psychological Association in both the divisions of health and trauma psychology. She's editor-in-chief of U.S. Lactation Consultation Association's journal, Clinical Lactation, and is the president-elect of the American Psychological Association's division of trauma psychology. Dr. Kendall Tackett is the author of more than 320 journal articles, book chapters, and other publications, and author or editor of 22 books in fields of trauma, women's health, depression, and breastfeeding, including Treating the Lifetime Health Effects of Childhood Victimization, second edition. 
Um, she is just super amazing. She has been uh, a hero of mine for a very long time. The very first time I saw her speak, I was just enraptured. I was like, who is this woman and how can I be friends with her? Because she's amazing. So I'm really excited to have her on the program today. Thank you for joining us, uh, Kathleen. Thank you for being on the program. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks, Gina, for that great introduction. I appreciate it. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I mean, <laughs> I could have gone on and on and on, but I want to make sure we, we get some other information out there today. <laughs> You've done so much. Um, I remember the first time I saw you speak at a Little conference, I was just like, oh, my goodness, where have you been all of my life? Uh, it was amazing. Uh, you gave a talk about, um, I believe it was on co-sleeping and, and breastfeeding. And, oh, okay, uh, okay. It was really eye-opening. Um, I learned a lot. I I was really surprised to know how many people um, were were bringing the baby to bed with them, but not telling their doctors or not telling other people about it. That was very oh, absolutely. It still happens all the time. Yeah, and well, that's well. Let's 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 get into some of this stuff today. We're talking okay. about breastfeeding. I know you heard Jack at the beginning of the program. He's um, falling asleep. He's nursing right now. Um, he's he was born in uh, May of last year. So we're looking at coming up on 19 months now. And um, I about quit. I think when I saw you at the Birth and Beyond conference in uh, London, Ontario, I was at my wit's end. And we were having a really difficult time breastfeeding. So to make it this far is kind of a big deal for me. Um, it's a huge deal. Yeah, with especially with him. And he's still just like the worst nurser ever. He just has the worst latch. Like as we speak, he's like just right at the end of of my nipple here and it hurts. Um, but I, you know, was stuck it out. But I think a lot of people would, um, would say that 19 months is extended breastfeeding. Um, it doesn't seem extended to me. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about what, what that is or what the definition of extended breastfeeding is and, um, and what, what that's about. Well, it's kind of interesting because you know, in 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 our culture, you know, it's like uh, you know, when we when we did our study back in the early 1990s, you know, the average length of of breastfeeding in the United States was about two months, and so wow. um, when my colleague Muriel Sugarman actually collected a bunch of data, that her definition that she was using to be in the study was extended breastfeeding was anything over six months. Ah. You know, so, you know, and, you know, and we kind of just know from sort of anecdote, if somebody makes it to six months, chances are they're going to go farther than that. Um, so we did that study, and what we found is actually on average, now she was going with women who had breastfed one, at least one baby for six months, but what we found is actually the average with that group of moms was two and a half to three years. That's a number that you just saw over and over and over again. And you see that, like in other cultures, you see that in other contexts. You know, that kind of two and a half to three years seems to be kind of a biological norm. Uh, yeah. Anyway, when we published that study, we had a heck of a time getting that study published because, Why? you know, we, we sent it off to this one journal. And, I mean, I swear, I, I've never gotten reviews as bad as that. You know, and, you know, now I've got another, you know, 20 years of experience. I've never had reviews that bad. Um, I, I think, actually, if they could have physically hit us, they would have. Uh, they just hated that article. And uh, I called a colleague of mine at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia, and I said, you know, look, I said, I'm having trouble getting this article published. What do you think? And he goes, oh, I never go to, you know, any name, the journal we went to. And he goes, they're really mean. And I said, yeah, that's kind of my experience. <laughs> but anyway, we ended up sending it to clinical pediatrics, and they loved it. Um, you know, it got published right away. They sort of fast-tracked it. And, you know, the, that was the one where we showed the weaning ages. And again, like I said, two and a half to three seemed to be the number that came up when when parents were practicing baby led weaning. 
Uh, that, that seemed to be the number that came up. Well, what was kind of interesting about the history of that paper is that was the one that was actually used to justify the change in the American Academy of Pediatrics policy, which was when they started recommending that mothers breastfeed for at least 12 months and as long thereafter as mutually desired. That paper that we did was the one that they cited. And, you know, that came out and that recommendation came out in like 1997. And, I mean, it was so controversial. I mean, there was just this swirl of controversy. You know, everybody's saying, oh, my God, 12 months, you're forcing mothers to breastfeed for 12 months. That's just ridiculous. You know, um, World Health Organization actually recommends age two, but AAP decided that two would really be too much, you know, that it would be just too, you know, too much of a change. So one year has been kind of what they recommended. And we're finding actually mothers are, are more mothers are getting closer to that. You know, so that's actually, I think, good. But what we're kind of, I think, you know, I think what I'd like to see is us moving more toward, you know, the two uh, because right. World Health Organization really recommends that that based on infant survival statistics. Um, so, again, like I said, I think our definition of this is starting to change. You're seeing more and more people come out and saying they're breastfeed for longer times, which, boy, I can tell you, back in the early 90s, you did not see. Um, oh, and, yeah, so it, it, it to me it's been kind of exciting to see the change, but there's still a fairly tremendous amount of sort of backlash, you know, against moms who, especially once they get to, you know, like age two or something like that, people start freaking out. Well, yeah, I'm, I, <laughs> that's that's a good <laughs> that's a good word, freaking out. Yeah. Um, I've, I I t- I tell people all the time too about um, I think we forget uh, when I talk to other doulas and stuff, we forget that um, like what our beginning, like what's your origin story, <laughs> and mine right. is um, I went to a well, Leche League meeting with my uh, first baby. I was having a really hard time with her. And um, she, uh, we, we went to a Leche League meeting. She was about maybe six weeks old, and I was ready to quit. And my husband had gone to the hospital. He went to the hospital mm. the baby was born at. And he said, somebody please help me. My wife wants to stop nursing. <laughs> what do yeah. I do? And, uh, you know, where, what can I do to help her? She's in pain. And they said, go take her to a Leche League meeting, which I thought was great back, you know, 13 yeah. years ago. And That's fantastic. Went. And this woman helped me. Oh my gosh, Kathleen, she she showed me with her own baby. She had a brand new baby too, and she was there to support other moms. And she showed me how to get the baby on the breast without it hurting using yeah. her own breast. And I was just like, "Wow, this is amazing, wonderful." And then this like old kid, like in my mind, he might as well have been in college, but in real life, he was probably three. <laughs> He was probably a three-year-old, and he toppled in, and he lifted her shirt and started nursing. And I was totally grossed out. I'm not going to lie. I was like, what the hell? And I was like, that kid's old enough to eat. Why is he breastfeeding? This is weird. Yeah. And I was really weirded out. And I, in my mind, I said, I just want to make it six months, and, and that's it. If I can make it six yeah. months, I'll be happy. And I made it six months, and then I made it another month, and I made it to a year. And then um, I remember at my daughter's birthday party, uh, they were they they sang happy birthday, and I yeah, we all said happy birthday, and I was like, and here's to making it a year breastfeeding, and I have the picture of my entire family looking at me, and somebody took the picture, and they're all like, what is wrong with you? I was so excited, I was so happy, I made it to a year, and then I just I kept going, and we nursed yeah. until she was she was three in a month, and she told me one day she's like, you don't have any more milk, and that's when I found out I was pregnant. Oh. Um, and all of my kids are spaced by um, the amount of breastfeeding when they, um, it was about three years apart. All of my girls right. are three years apart, except for Jack, my surprise 
five five years apart boy but yeah it was like all kind of had to do with they kind of slowed down in their nursing and then I got pregnant it was very interesting yeah yeah, How that works. And actually, and you, you know, and we kind of see that worldwide. I mean, it's like if you look at other countries, you know, um, yeah. Miriam Labock's done a lot of research on this and, you know, what she calls lactational amenorrhea and finding actually that it is actually the number one form of contraception worldwide. Now, we yeah. don't necessarily think of that here, you know, because we think, oh, yeah, well, you know, you can get pregnant while breastfeeding, which is true. You know, but yeah. especially babies that are with moms all the time and the moms are breastfeeding at night and they're doing all mm-hmm. these things, you know, we do know that it actually does suppress fertility. And, you know, so again, you get that kind of natural child spacing from that. And again, like I said, I think that that's one of the things that actually really aids in sort of infant survival. You know, because if, if moms have baby, 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 you know, oftentimes we find, especially when we start looking at developing countries or, you know, countries where there's emergencies and stuff that's going on in so much part of the world, you know, that mm-hmm. if you don't have that natural child spacing, it's, it, it, it impairs both moms and baby's health. So, you know, it's just one of those those wonderful kind of built-in systems, you know, that kind of helps our babies survive. Right. Oh, well, I, 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 I totally forgot my, my whole point of what I was saying was that I, I was not um, – Educated, I guess, in, in the ways of uh, what it, even breastfeeding looked like. I, my, I never saw my mom like breastfeed my sister. I never saw it growing up. And mm-hmm. if I did, it was, was with babies. Right. And so for me, it was just weird to see a toddler nursing. And it wasn't until I was going to more meetings and then I opened a maternity store. There was people nursing around me all the time. That was just totally normal. It didn't faze me at all. But, I mean, we have a culture that really kind of freaks out about breastfeeding. Um, oh, absolutely. Today, and, you know, I, I have to be honest, you know, it's like when I was first coding the data, you know, that my friend Meryl had collected, and I was, mm-hmm. you know, I was home with a new baby, and I was kind of going through and coding all this data. There were all these mothers that breastfed till five, and I kept saying out loud, five? They breastfed <laughs> till they were five? I mean, really? I mean, I, I was just shocked by it, because it's like, you know, right. my original plan with my first baby was to go six weeks. Right. I mean, I couldn't even imagine going longer than that. Well, I ended up going to nine months with him. Well, then, you know, I have this new baby. By then, I'd, you know, gotten a lot more sort of educated. Um, right. You know, I'd been going to, lo- I started going to Lollapalooza League meetings then. You know, I'd read much more about it, and I started working on this study. And I have to say, honestly, working on that study actually probably changed my mind more than anything, because what happened is I started meeting all these mothers that I actually knew that I had no idea that they were still nursing. I mean, it was like this whole closet thing. There was, there's even a term in the literature that talk about closet nursing. You know, and yeah. it, it, the author actually compared it. She wrote this like in the 1970s, but she actually compared, you know, long-term breastfeeding to revealing your sexual orientation. And saying, you know, that there'd be all these sort of repercussions for it if you yeah. did. And, you know, and it's like, what should, you know, should you claim that as identity and everything? And I did find it to be very true that so many of the mothers that I knew, and it got to be kind of a joke, because it'd be, you know, like, oh, what are you working on now? Oh, yeah, I'm working on a study on extended breastfeeding. Really? You know, and they'd say, they'd look around, and they'd say, so what do you mean by extended? Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, I mean, it's just changed my, I have to admit, it just changed my view. And so, you know, with my youngest, we went to four and a half. You know, I would have never done that if I hadn't, like, seen so many of the other moms. And it just made sense for us, you know, to go a longer time. I mean, it was just kind of what he needed. Um, You know, so it is very interesting. You know, it's like I said, my first first reaction was, oh, my God, you know, Mm -hmm. that I would never do that. 
you know, of course, never say never because you end up doing things as a parent that you say you're never, ever, ever going to do. But, right. you know, when you start seeing it kind of in the context of kind of worldwide, you know, all of a sudden it seems okay, and it's kind of like, why fight it? You know, and it's like, especially with toddlers. I mean, you know, especially talking about, you know, one- and two-year-olds and stuff. I mean, it's like a magic tool. You know, you just see that oh, over and over. Wow. You know, it's kind of the, it's the old, it's the, it's the fix it. You know, you got your baby running around, they, you know, fall down on the ground, they're screaming, you know, pick them up, put them on the breast, and boom, you know, they're better in like two seconds. Yeah, absolutely. That It's like, it's like magic. It's a it's a cheat. Like, my husband said, he's like, God, I wish I could breastfeed the kids. Just like, when you're not around, <laughs> don't you fall down. He's like, where's Gina? You need to get, you need to get a boob in the mouth. You know, I saw a family on a plane not too long ago. And, you know, I mean, you know, little kids on planes, they love it, mm-hmm. right? You know, they they right. like it about as much as adults do. And right. this little girl, I mean, you know, she had a very involved dad who was sitting there really, I mean, really responding to her and kind of being there. But, you know, she was kind of freaking out. And she's, you know, throwing her, you know, throwing her head back and arching and yelling. And she was probably about, I don't know, 18 months or so. You know, and I thought, you know, and he was doing everything. I mean, he's pulling out toys. Yeah. He's got his cell phone out. He's doing, you know, kind of all these things to try to entertain this little girl. And I thought, you know, gosh, it's that would be so much easier if if the mom could nurse her. Right. You know, and I just I don't know, know how many times I've been on an airplane with a screaming baby in, in that kind of situation where I was like, I wish I could breastfeed that baby right now. <laughs> just well, you know, it, it's just thing. like I said, you know, I, I think sometimes we sort of, you know, don't necessarily think of it in terms of what a great mothering tool it is, you know, for, for you know, fussy toddlers. Ah, you know, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think the thing is changing, but, you know, it's funny because, like, I was thinking about that Maya Biliak, you know, she uh, they were announcing on TV not too long ago that she was getting a divorce. And, mm. you know, what they immediately said is probably because of her extreme parenting practices. Oh, my God. <laughs> I know, and so I thought... <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! You know, and I thought, you know, I, I was just sad. I was sad for her, and I was just—I, I, it made me sad too. That you know, again, like I said, the fact that she's made these parenting po- and she's stepped out bravely and you yeah. know, made it a public issue. Right. Oh, as if I—that I, always cracks me up on people. You know, they—they they know everything. Just my my new philosophy is never read the comments. Under an article, <laughs> it's really upsetting. Yeah, I've I've actually heard that from a lot of people, and like I said, she really did, you know, step out kind of as a public face of this. Uh-huh. You know, uh, it's a great lady. I, I think I'll it's actually, it. you know, it, it, you know, we still see if I see people freaking out. I mean, the way people freaked out over that Time magazine cover, I think, was, you know, very telling. I, I felt sorry for Jamie Lynn Gourmet being kind of in the middle of that. Oh yeah, absolutely. That and that was a big deal, and I um. Uh, she was super brave to do that too, uh, I, and people really freaked out about like the size of her baby. And um, can we talk about some myths, some things that I hear all the time or see all the time on Facebook sure. whenever there's a when I do read the comments and I shouldn't. Um, and people people will say, well, when they have teeth, they can stop nursing. If they can eat, then right. they don't have to breastfeed anymore. Can we talk right. about that? Well, I think actually probably one of the best arguments about this that I've ever seen is is Kathy Detweiler's uh, article that she wrote about the you know the hominid blueprint for the natural age of weaning, and she wrote it back in 1995. But I think it's still just a really good piece. And what she did is she actually compared uh, other mammals to these different sort of biological milestones. And one of them was getting teeth, and one of them was getting adult teeth. Um, and 
you know, say what would be sort of the natural age of weaning, you know, for these other species. When did that happen in other species, and when did it correspond with their weaning? And anyway, basically what she concluded is anywhere from most of these developmental markers, you know, one of them was, I think, getting to be a quarter of your adult size, um, you know, which, of course, happens quicker for boys than it does for girls. Um, you know, various other kinds of things. I'm trying to think what other ones that they had. Anyway, she had a whole list of ones. Anyway, the range of age that she had in there was anywhere from two to five, you know, and hmm. some of them were even a little bit higher. You know, and so she was kind of saying, and, and she's used this a lot in court cases, you know, and she said, look, people think that this is really strange, but in the bigger scheme of things, it it, it really isn't. You know, and again, like I said, we, we really see consistently kind of across different, you know, time periods and also across different sort of cultures, um, you know, two and a half to three being kind of a, you know, a kind of a key age. And again, like I said, you know, babies can get teeth actually really quite early. My youngest son actually, or my oldest son got his at four months. You know, yeah, his first set of teeth. You know, and uh, you know that is way early to breast. You know, to to stop breastfeeding. You know, so yeah. again, like I said, that you know, getting the getting those teeth at such an early age doesn't necessarily mean it's time to wean. You know, and so what Kathy Dewaller used in her marker is actually the beginning of adult teeth, not baby teeth. But it is uh-huh. quite possible to still breastfeed when a baby has teeth. You know, when they're actually breastfeeding, they actually can't bite you because they've got, you know, the tongue is actually blocking those bottom teeth. Mm-hmm. You know, now what you've got to watch is babies do sometimes bite, but it's usually at the end of a feeding. They're all done, you know, and it's kind of like, oh, I wonder what happens if I do this. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. No, he's, and he's, but, he's done it. They've done it a number of times. Um, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, you always kind of, that, that's what I kind of tell moms is what you want to do is like just, you know, when they kind of, if they look like they're kind of biting, you know, and again, like I said, if, especially if they're teething, it feels good to bite on things, mm-hmm. um, you know, just watch them, you know, and it's kind of like when they kind of get to the end, you know, just kind of, okay, we're done, you know, and break the suction. Yeah, Cause, uh, well, what about, what about them saying that, um, well, I mean, not so much about teeth, but about eating. Like if they can eat yeah. solid foods, then they don't need breast milk. That's what I see all the time. Well, the complementary foods are really meant to be just that complementary. They're meant to be an addition to, you know, breast milk. Breast milk is still, you know, when you look at what major health organizations say, you know, like the American Academy of Pediatrics, the World Health Organization especially, they've really done a lot of different studies on this. You know, and the addition of food is not supposed to be the primary source of nutrients. You know, you know, pound for pound, food is not as nutrient-dense and, and as, you know, calorically dense as breast milk. You know, breast milk is supposed to, breast milk or formula, are supposed to be the primary food with the foods that you, the, you know, other, other types of foods being add-ons. You know, because babies don't eat that much, you know, when they're first starting to learn to eat food. And it wouldn't necessarily be enough to sustain them. They would have to have either breast milk or formula, you know, something. You can't just feed them food. You know, so even if you had a baby who was formula-fed, you would continue using formula and and add on the food. You know, so, you know, the same argument goes with a breastfed baby. Breastfed baby, the primary source of nutrition is going to be still breast milk, especially in that first year. You know, and again, like I said, if you think about what the, the statement is, the American Academy statement, the recommendation is exclusive for six months and then complementary foods after that. And then as long, you know, continuing breastfeeding as long thereafter as the mother desires. You know, so again, like I said, the American Academy tends to be actually pretty conservative about some of these things. You know, World Health Organization yeah. since 1990 has said two years. 
you know, so again, like I said, the the idea is that, you know, it's supposed to be the primary source of nutrition, but also, you know, you get all that protection, you know, against uh, against disease, you know, when you have breast yeah, milk. You know, and so again, like I said, they based actually that number on, you know, infant survival, you know, and so finding that if babies could go up to age two at least, that actually they were more likely to survive. You know, so that is actually kind of where those numbers are based. So again, food is not is not ever going to be really the substitute. It's an add-on. It's complementary. You know, it's just exactly what the name says. Yeah, and let's talk about that too. And, and it's a real bummer about the AAP, you know, saying to go to one year because the American Academy of Family Physicians says that kids that are weaned before two years of age are at an increased risk of illness. Yeah. So it's a bummer that the AAP doesn't take it that one extra year. Well, I think actually the reasoning behind this, and I, I think actually there is some validity to that, is they really felt like if they set the bar too high, people wouldn't try to achieve it. Mm. And I think actually in some ways that's true because we were so below, you know, anything close to like exclusive breastfeeding, you know, even up to six months, um, that I think what they were trying to do is set a goal that people could make. And also, I really think, too, that they knew that this was going to be controversial, and it was. I mean, mm. I still remember that. You know, 19, it was 1997, and people were freaking out about this. I mm. mean, they were like, one year, are you kidding? Was it? You know, see, and now, you know, more and more people have said, okay, one year. Right. You know, and so it's like it really actually has kind of created some acceptance. But I think, again, like I said, I really do think in some ways I think that they were very smart in what they did because it, they, they they wanted to make it sort of an achievable goal. And mm. I think actually we have actually moved the, you know, moved the bar up. So I think that's good. So, you know, the next step I think it would be nice if we could say, okay, now, well, let's think let's about try for two. two. <laughs> let's try for two. You know, but we're still well, so far under, you know, women making it even for a year, but it's much better than it was. Right. But I get, that's the thing, too. It's like, I don't want to, with like my show, I just want to share information. I don't want to tell people, like, you have to do this or that. But it's nice to know the information. Like, I really wish that somebody would have told me with my first daughter, like, hey, do you know that breastfeeding toddlers between the ages of one and three have been found to have fewer illnesses and illnesses yeah. of shorter duration and lower mortality rates? Like, it'd be nice well, to know that. Well, and just even getting the idea that it's it's not weird, you know, that it's right. actually perfectly normal i mean and that that i think is you know and that i think is you know especially me as a first-time mom you know six weeks i mean that's how long people breastfed you know, right. that was actually my idea i mean if, you know i felt like i was like out kind of like all by myself on the sort of prairie you know even going to nine months because i didn't know anybody else you know who even right. went that long you know and it's just like it just kind of naturally seemed to you know extend you know, and it was like I thought, well, okay, this sounds good. But it did, you know, I mean, because, again, you start getting feedback from people. Well, when are you going to give that up? Are you so breastfeeding? Oh, my mom. Why are you doing that? <laughs> and mothers yeah. start hearing that probably about, you know, by about three months. You know, yeah, people at three start months, making comments. Exactly. My mom was yep. like, why are you still breastfeeding that baby? Why yeah. are you still breastfeeding him? We we have free formula. They sent it in the mail. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Why are you still breastfeeding? And I was like, well, that's a good question. I'm going to go look that up. And yeah. and then I was like, here's all the reasons why I'm still breastfeeding. Um, well, yeah. and, you know, I said it's a, um, you know, I, I think it's a question, again, that a lot of moms, you know, have. And, and if you don't have any sort of role models to say, you know, here's some ages. So, again, like I said, in some ways I think, 
American Academy was smart in setting a goal that we could achieve, you know, given, you know, the sort of negative stigma and stuff. And, I mean, boy, I'll tell you, you know, they were right about the controversy. I mean, I still remember it just swirling around like mad. Now, when they came out with the same recommendation in 2005, people kind of said, yeah, okay. You know, so they have actually moved the bar. And I think actually that's a that's a good step. But you know, again, like I said, sometimes when I talk to moms, I'll say, yeah, you know, the, the World Health Organization actually recommends two. They were like two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, so, I remember you know, hearing that too. This is like way before I had my first baby in two thousand three, and just yeah. you know, to date myself, I graduated in ninety one from high school, so I wasn't thinking about having babies at that time. But I do remember right. that um, that uh, a U.S. Surgeon General had said. Uh, that it's a lucky baby who continues mm. to nurse until age two. And I remember thinking, what? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And But that's the thing. So how do we, how is that ever going to change, Kathleen? How, do you think it's like, do people, we're just they're just going to have to see it more and more to normalize it, right? <laughs> I think actually that's a, I think that's a big part of it. You know, and one of the things I was thinking about, because I'm getting ready to write an editorial for the next issue of Clinical Lactation, but, um, you know, I was reading a couple of articles about this backlash, supposed, against all the lactivists. Uh, you know, and again, a party, you know, coming from that New York Times piece that, that was out recently. You know, I was talking oh, about yeah. all of these, you know, these, you know, awful women. They're forcing all these women to breastfeed. They're shaming <laughs> them if they don't, you know, and everything. And, right. you know, I, I read that story in a different way. You know, because it's like there was one mom they gave an example of in one of the articles talking about this sort of backlash. And, you know, this poor woman, you know, had breastfed in agony for two weeks and then finally had decided that she was going to quit. She couldn't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. And everybody was like, oh, you're a horrible mother, you know. And every, I mean, it's just like, first of all, you know, I work in the family violence field. I mean, stopping breastfeeding is not even a blip on the radar of the horrible mother you know, sort right. of here. <laughs> it just isn't, right. you know, and it's like, and first of all, I was just appalled that that poor mom got put through that. Oh. But the other thing that kind of struck me is I thought, where were people saying, hey, wait a second, you know, it doesn't actually have to hurt. You know, can we help you, you know, breastfeed so it doesn't hurt? I mean, pain is a signal that something is wrong. Right. You, know, you shouldn't actually have to kind of persist on for two weeks like this in agony. It's crazy. You know, let's see if we can figure out what's going on. You know, that's what I would have liked to have seen for that mom. You know, and I think partly, you know, I think we're, what we're going to have to do if we're going to move kind of to a point where we're getting close to our goals, you know, is we've got to be better at postpartum support. You know, we're just not there. We fall so short on so many measures of it um, that I think that that is actually, if we can get moms you know, doing, being able to exclusively breastfeed for six months, I think actually the rest of it is going to actually kind of take care of itself. Right. You know, that I right. think, well, that, you know, if we can absolutely. get them those, in those first few months, you know, so it, it's it's enjoyable and it's doable, you know, I think actually they'll continue. You know, so I think really the critical thing, and I think the thing we're not doing, is really providing mothers with good support. You know, and also providing mothers with support when they say, it hurts. Somebody says, gosh, you know what, let me see if I can help you with that. Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. And it shouldn't hurt. And no one should do it if they don't want to. That's another thing, too. Absolutely. That's going to affect your parenting, and it's going to affect you as a human being. I don't think, if if you don't want to to breastfeed for whatever personal reason you have, then you shouldn't be made to feel bad about your decision or anything like that. I think that's that's a a really terrible way that we we do treat moms, and moms don't get support um, 
when, you know, they make a decision based on, you know, really it's no, nobody's business what they base it on. Um, but let's right. say they've, they've had sexual abuse in the past or they just yeah. don't feel comfortable about it or just whatever. They don't even need an excuse. If they don't want to, they don't. They shouldn't be made to feel bad about it. But if they're curious about it and they want to know more about it, um, right. then there's no reason not to share information with them. But yeah, when it's hurting, that's a whole other thing. And I, I, I and I get it too. Um, I'm really blessed to have had this situation with Jack, um, with this just really terrible breastfeeding relationship that we've had. Yeah. Um, where I understand now, and I, I wrote an article about that. I think at three months where. I didn't even write an article. It was a Facebook thing. I have a really long Facebook post about, I get it. I get why women quit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because here I am surrounded by all of this support from, right. uh, I've got, I probably have like 100 friends who are lactation consultants and, and locally, you know, friends who are lactation consultants and um, just, you know, and I had the, the wherewithal. I had saved money for a postpartum doula, so I ended up using that money to get a, his tongue tie taken care of and yeah. got him but I had the money, so I was privileged to have the money. What if, you know, I'm a mom who doesn't have a circle of support of people who even right. get breastfeeding and exactly. I'm in pain? Of course they're going to quit, and I get it. I totally oh, yeah. get it. Oh, I get and it, I too. Quit, I get it, too. No matter you know, what. Even, even, the moms who, even the moms who say, I don't want to breastfeed, you know, it's like, can somebody just sit down and say, you know, okay, can you kind of tell me a little more about that? Why? Yeah, you know, and if they say, I don't want to talk about it, we we accept that, but I think sometimes yeah. you know they may have some ideas that maybe aren't aren't accurate, you know. Right. And to just have somebody sort of non non judgmentally kindly sit down and ask them a couple of questions, I think actually, you know, could turn some of that around too. Well, yeah. Well, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions too. I remember um, yeah. I I had said that I didn't want to nurse for too long because I didn't want saggy boobs. Right. <laughs> That's what I thought with my first kid. Um, and then I learned differently about that. So is that is that a myth? Breastfeeding makes you have uh, saggy breasts? Right. Yeah, it is. Okay. Actually, pregnancy makes you have saggy breasts. <laughs> yeah, so there's the bummer it's bit. It's too late. So, it's too yeah. late. <laughs> it's time for worrying no, yeah, about it's not breastfeeding. <laughs> but... Um, it's you know I, I, again like I said I think you know I, I think part of it is just you know there's just this this is just incredible lack of support and then you know I I don't like this you know shaming of moms and again like I said yeah. I don't think that that's the majority of people but I think that there's enough people kind of participating in that that it kind of like taints everybody um, you know it's really not it's not appropriate you know I think we need to kind of sit down and talk to moms and find out why and always respect the mom's choice. You know, if mom decides not to, you know, and if we kind of talk to her and, you know, make sure we've ruled out anything, you know, in particular that's a barrier, um, you know, to uh, then we just accept the choice. You know, but one of the things this article was saying, oh, is that mothers need to have like a medical prescription to get formula and stuff. And, well, basically all that means is they just can't hand out the free stuff anymore. You know, it's kind of like any type of thing in the hospital that a mom needs you know, they have to, like, swipe their little, you know, card saying that the mom is getting that. You know, so if it's getting anything, if she's getting, you know, extra pads, if she's getting, um, you know, extra diapers in the in the cart, I mean, all that stuff, you know, anything that the mom has in the hospital has to be kind of, like, charted and charged for. And so that that's all that really means. It's not that she doesn't have access to it. It just means that it's, there's a different way it's distributed. You know, and so it's not going to show up as free samples. You know, because we have found out that when hospitals pound, 
you know, pass out free samples of formula, the breastfeeding rates go down. You know, so that's one of the reasons why they have tried to stop that. Um, but again, like I said, you know, it's, you know, it, it, it's a it's a tricky issue because I've I've talked to moms who have gone through absolute hell, and finally have said, you know, I just can't do it. You know, and I feel bad for those moms because I know that they haven't gotten good support. I mean, I know really that's really at the core of it. You know, and it's like if somebody could just sit down, you know, and again, sometimes, you know, there's problems that you can't figure out. You know, and yeah. it's kind of like, it, it's sad. It's sad when that happens. I had a I had a mom recently, uh, she had to wean because she had to go on one of the medications that you absolutely cannot breastfeed on. You know, and it was just heartbreaking. I mean, uh, you know, so again, like I said, there's a lot of, you know, and so, you know, to think that that mom might encounter, you know, people saying things out in public, I mean, it's just, it really makes me very upset when that happens. And so, again, like I said, I think, you know, we have to, the culture I think we really have to change is that lack of support for, for new moms. Because uh, I think if we do that, I think we're going to find a lot of our rates and stuff get better. You know, and I think it's going to address some of the things that, you know, people are critics about, you know, in this sort of lactivist. You know, because, again, like I said, I think if we can change how we talk to new moms, uh, we're addressing a lot of the things, the points and objections that people raise. Right. Well, and there's and there's a lot of people who raise them. There's um, I've heard some crazy stuff uh, about uh, um, breastfeeding from. Well, I don't even want to name the author. Um, just talking about uh, how babies are dying because uh, breastfeeding advocates are lying. <laughs> talking about how. What? Uh, yeah, that's a real article. I'll send it to you. <laughs> um, wow. Yeah. It, it's um i think it comes from the this idea that um like like breastfeeding women are smug <laughs> that um the our advocates for for breastfeeding um are somehow elitist or um i don't know i don't know it's it's interesting uh the backlash against breastfeeding when yeah. when yeah. there's so much evidence that that shows how good it can be. I get that not everybody's going to be able to breastfeed, but I don't right. see anything wrong with talking about how good it can be for um the folks who can do it. And I don't know I don't know how to say how can I say that better? That's it's a it's a healthy alternative and why not look into it? Why not know more about it and why not talk about it? Right. Um well, and you know you know, be in a culture where we're 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 kind to to new mothers. You know that we right. don't sit there and kind of make you know assumptions and judgments based on stuff we have no we have no clue what's going on with a particular family. You know, it's kind of interesting. I did want to come back to one of the points you raised. You were talking about uh, sexual abuse. Um, yeah. Now, what's kind of interesting about that is, you know, because I do research in sexual abuse and have actually for thirty years, I ended up actually, you know, well, literally actually. <laughs> Actually, and I have to say, pretty much forced me at gunpoint to go talk about it at conferences. Um, because the reason I didn't want to is because there wasn't any research on it. And I said, what am I going to talk about? Um, but there is a lot of research on sexual abuse. And what's kind of interesting is the first two studies on it. And the first study was actually never even published like in a journal. It was actually part of a grant report. Uh, and I knew the researcher. And I basically followed her around at a conference until she let me see her data. Um, because she mm-hmm, told me she had mm-hmm, the data. Mm-hmm. But what they found is that women with a history of sexual abuse had were more likely to say that they intended to breastfeed. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, in another study that was published in Journal of Human Lactation, they were more likely to initiate breastfeeding. It was two and a half times more likely. Now, that's really kind of an interesting, those are both interesting findings because they're kind of counterintuitive. You know, we wouldn't expect that. 
You know, because I think the assumption a lot of times people make is if people have those kind of histories, they're not going to want to. You know, and I think mm. we've got to be kind of careful. And this is what, what I said for years and years. I said, I said, look, don't make assumptions. You you don't actually know, you know, what, what's going on with a mom. You know, it's like be there to support her. And, you know, over the years I've actually talked to hundreds of moms who have this kind of background because they come talk to me, you know, because they know I do research in this area, you know, and they know I've been around sexual assault and sexual abuse for, as I said, over 30 years now. Um, so it's, you know, it's a topic that I'm not going to – be uncomfortable talking about or freaking out about. So I get emails from people. I meet moms at conferences. Uh, a lot of them actually are also lactation consultants, you know, and, and talk to me about some of the histories that they've had. But, uh, you know, so I know it's not always an easy thing. But what was interesting is what we found in our study is we had 6,410 moms, 994 identified as having been sexually assaulted. So it was not just child mm-hmm. sexual abuse. It was the most serious form. You know, so it was either sexual assault, you know, that happened in childhood or like as a teen you know, so again, like I said, it it was rape. It was the the, the kind of the highest category. And so we had almost a thousand women who reported that. You know, which is just you know really it's just the the ramifications of that you know staggering number are really huge. Um, but what's interesting, I kind of analyzed that based on kind of feeding method, and what we found is first of all, the women with a history of sexual assault exclusively breastfed at exactly the same rate as the non-assaulted women. Wow. It was exactly the same rate. It was seventy-eight percent for both. Like seventy-eight point four percent for one group and seventy-eight point like six percent for the other group. I mean, so really, for all intents and purposes, identical. The other thing that was really interesting is that if women were exclusively breastfeeding, now if they were mixed feeding, we didn't see the same finding. But if they were exclusively breastfeeding, what we found is it lessened the effects of the trauma on all the measures, every single measure. I couldn't believe it actually when I first saw it. Wow. Yeah, because there's a there's a biology to breastfeeding that actually turns down that kind of hyperactive stress response, and we saw that so clearly because every measure we looked at, if we just looked at you know whether you know the sexual assault status, if we just looked at whether women had a history of assault or not, on every measure they were bad. You know, it was you know more depression, more um, you know more sleep problems. It was just on and on and on. Every measure they were they were you know pervasive negative effects is what we said. If we added feeding method to that same analysis, you know, so we looked at that, you know, sexual assault status plus how they were feeding, either exclusively breastfeeding or not. Now, the reason we did it that way is because we found when mixed and formula feeding were not significantly different from each other, so we combined them. So what we saw was this very, very clear pattern. And the one that really was striking to me was anger and irritability, you know, because mm. that's a real common thing in people who have experienced trauma is this yeah. sort of hyperactive sort of anger response. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's that, you know, when you read like, you know, um, reports of kids, you know, who are growing up with parents who've been in the war, you know, and they say, well, they're sitting there and they're disengaged and then next thing you know, they fly into a rage. Okay, mm-hmm. So it's a real common kind of symptom. The breastfeeding mothers was absolutely chill. They were exactly the same as the non-assaulted moms versus you saw this big spike in the women who were mixed or formula feeding. You know, mm. so they weren't getting that physical turning off of that stress response. You know, which actually, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, when we start looking at other studies, that actually really makes a lot of sense. You know, so again, like I said, it's not to say that the women with a history of sexual assault aren't going to encounter challenges. You know, because, I mean, I've talked to too many moms to know that that's actually not necessarily true. Now, some moms mm-hmm. breastfeed beautifully and it just goes great. But other moms, you know, honestly, they struggle. There's there's issues that come up uh, that make it challenging. 
you know, part of it is they just wonder if they can trust their bodies, you know, and if uh, how are they going to feel about it and how are they going to feel with that close contact with the baby. I mean, there's just a whole bunch of issues that sometimes come up. But again, like I said, you know, we shouldn't assume. We should kind of always meet mothers where they are, you know, and work with them and do whatever they can do. And so even sometimes if they are going to just partially breastfeed, we support that. You know, we kind of meet yeah. them where they are. Um, but yeah, I was uh, I was amazed actually when I saw that. I mean, those are the kind of findings you hope you're going to get sometime. And when I first saw those analysis, you know, go over my computer screen, I, I you know I saw the graphs. That's actually where I really could see it. And I thought, oh my god. I mean, that was literally my act, my reaction. Because we know from other studies that breastfeeding turns off that hyperactive stress response, but to see it so active in a trauma survivor was just amazing to me. You know, and I think what it says is that, you know, breastfeeding in some ways gives mothers a do-over. You know, a lot of moms come into parenting with not-so-great backgrounds. You know, they were not necessarily parented well themselves. But breastfeeding gives you a chance to start fresh, you know, and that's, a, I think, an incredible message that moms need to hear. You know, is you can do things differently. And yeah. breastfeeding is one of the tools that helps you do that. See, that's uh, I did not know a lot of that. <laughs> that's fantastic. Wow, I'm really blown away yeah. by that. Yeah, we did. Um, I did an article in Breastfeeding Today, the Lady League magazine. So that's available yeah. for free online. And actually showed the graphs. I have the graphs and I have some links. Um, you know, so I've got some little video clips and stuff. Um, so I, I think you can actually still find that. So Breastfeeding Today it came out in the. I think I want to say in September or October. Um, it was right around. It was right around the time of Ilka, so it might have been even a little earlier in the summer. Huh. Well, I'm gonna have to go and read it. That was amazing. Um, it's so good to know, and it makes so much sense too. And there's this there's this thing that happens when, like, I had my my third child. She weaned um, abruptly. Yeah. Um, and uh, I was so depressed afterwards, and it wasn't about not being mm-hmm. able to breastfeed. I was just depressed. And my girlfriend said, Gina, you're just you're um you're jonesing for the prolactin. That's the it was, <laughs> it was making you feel good and now you're feeling yeah. depressed. You're not getting that you're not getting that um that feedback that you got when you were breastfeeding. Well, and also that. to the ox you know, the oxytocin and, and also too, you know, if you you know what oxytocin does is it actually suppresses that sort of hyperactive stress response and mm-hmm. the stress response, you know, so all of a sudden you weren't getting that. So, yeah, I mean, you know, you certainly could have been depressed from that. Yeah, absolutely. I was just like, oh, that's what it is. I know. I'm, I know. <laughs> I'm not going crazy. It's okay. Um, <laughs> it was abrupt. It was just like it was all gone. Let's talk about that, though. That We've been talking okay. about breastfeeding as a means to nutrition. What about all the other good stuff? What about the, the stuff that's not quantifiable that you can't see in a graph? Um, that that it's not just like a means to feed your baby. It's not. Well, see, just... That's the interesting thing. You actually can see it in a graph. We've got some really? nice research on that. Yeah. One of the articles I did is I, um, I, I wrote it as an editorial, and then I've got a presentation on this, um, looking at kind of like it's, you know, sort of it's not just the milk. You know, breastfeeding kind of makes all the difference. You know, and one of the things that it really does is we know that it facilitates that secure mother-infant attachment. Now, you can actually have mother-infant attachment, you know, uh, be secure, even without breastfeeding. But the nice thing about breastfeeding is it's kind of built in. 
because the key thing to creating a secure attachment with your baby is responsive care. You know, that, that caregiver, you know, the mother or whoever is the sort of primary attachment figure, is responsive to the baby's needs, is there, you know, answers when the baby cries. You know, and remember, a lot of this research was done back in a time when breastfeeding was at pretty much an all-time low. So it does show you that you certainly can have that without breastfeeding. But the nice thing about breastfeeding is it builds it in. You know, and then you get all that kind of hormonal support as well, you know, that helps you kind of attach. You know, and as Tina Smiley says, you know, oxytocin is one of the things that kind of helps you um, be able to stand doing monotonous tasks, like sitting there feeding a baby over and over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one of the things that kind of helps facilitate that. But we, we have a huge literature on what happens if babies have a secure attachment versus if they don't. You know, and there's very long-term health implications of that. Uh, you know, there was a paper that came out at the end of 2013 in Health Psychology. Now, again, Health Psychology is not a developmental-type journal, certainly not an attachment parenting kind of warm and fuzzy type of journal. It isn't. But they had this article where they followed this cohort of people. Um, it was like 163 people, and they enrolled them at birth, and they had followed them at this, the time they did the study up to age 32. And they measured attachment in these in these participants um, at 12 to 18 months. That's when they tend to do the measures of attachment. Okay, and the babies that had insecure attachments at 12 to 18 months, when they hit age 32, they were more likely to have inflammation-based diseases. Mm. And again, like I said, that's one of the things that happens when you don't have that responsive care is you get that sort of hyperactive inflammatory response system, which is part of the stress response. Okay, and that's where you start getting diseases, you know, and if those are already showing up at age 32, I'd really like to see, you know, what's going to happen when these kids hit, you know, or these young adults hit 50 and 60 and 70. I think that's when you're going to see substantial differences uh, in terms of things like heart disease and diabetes. You know, so again, like I said, this is, you know, we do actually have, you know, we can kind of extrapolate it somewhat, in the, you know, independently. But yes, there is really a component. It's not just nutrition. It's that attachment you know, that it forms between mother and baby that makes such a huge difference. Um, another study I, I was thinking of, there's, well, actually there's two I want to tell you about. Um, one is Lane Strathern's study from Australia. And they had like, you know, 7,500 mother-infant pairs they followed for 15 years. And they actually found that there were um, 500 cases of what they called maternal perpetrated child maltreatment. Okay, so where there was documented cases that the mother either physically abused or neglected those kids. Okay, what they found is that breastfeeding made a huge difference there. Um, the breastfeeding mothers were 2.6 times less likely to physically abuse their children and 3.8 times less likely to neglect them. Mm. And again, I said, that's, you know, those are documented cases. And, you know, that's a very well-done study. You know, it's like when people used to say, oh, breastfeeding prevents child abuse. I was, I was hesitant to say that, truthfully. Um, mm-hmm. But that study, I have to say, is pretty convincing. You know, and again, if you tie it with what we found with, you know, what it does to the anger response, you know, that to me makes a lot of sense. Um, but the other study is they looked at children's mental health, and they did that over a period of 14 years. And if children breastfed for 12 months or longer, um, their mental health at every age point was better. They had less pathology. Hmm. And again, I really think, I don't think that that's a fact of the milk, although that probably helps a bit. But I think actually really what that is is the attachment you know, because in order to breastfeed for 12 months, you have to have responsive care. If you don't have responsive care, you know, you don't get that. You know, and mm-hmm. breastfeeding doesn't, you know, breastfeeding doesn't succeed for that long. You know, if you've got babies on schedules and you're not listening to baby's cues and stuff, breastfeeding doesn't succeed. 
And so, again, I really think it kind of came down to the physical act of breastfeeding and what it did for that mother-infant relationship. And then we saw, you know, up to age 14, less pathology at every age. Now, does this mean that some of the kids didn't show signs of pathology? Yeah, they did, actually. But at every age level, the you know, the score, they used this thing called the child behavior checklist. You know, it's kind of a standard measure of, of child pathology. And at every age, those scores were significantly lower. You know, so, again, like I said, we do actually have data now. And I think in really good studies and really well-done longitudinal studies showing these kinds of differences. Well, wouldn't that be good news though for for moms who have to who have to formula feed to yeah. um to let them know like hey you know if you're doing it in a very responsive way and you're holding yep. your baby and you're licking on the parents and okay that's uh, that's good news and I it is good news I mean you know the, the harder part of that is they don't have some of the nice biological supports for that but yes it absolutely can be done you know and in fact with any of our moms who cannot breastfeed for whatever reason. You know, that's where we got to be really focusing our attention is helping them create that sort of bond with that baby because that's really what's going to make the difference in terms of long-term health. You know, yeah, the milk actually I think it does, you know, incredible things to, you know, establishing the microbiome of the gut, you know, to, you know, doing all the things with the immune system. I mean, just, you know, we've got sort of a physical substrate, but there's another part of that, and that's the emotional substrate. You know, and that's a part. And, again, I, you know, we we, um, we did a monograph on milk supply for clinical lactation. You know, so we pulled all the articles together on, you know, like milk supply and what happens if you have low milk supply and how do you fix it and how do you do all these things. You know, and I, I included one of my articles in there. It was just a short piece I did as an editorial and said, you know, it's not just milk. You know, and if moms are in a situation where, for whatever reason, they can't produce, you know, a full milk supply, they need to know that the most important component you know, of, you know, the most important factor in creating sort of long-term health in the baby is them, the mother, Mm -hmm. you know, and that responsive care, you know, and if she's in there providing that responsive care to that baby, you know, that even if the baby is not fully breastfed, you know, is that's what's really going to kind of carry the day. You know, so again, we got to kind of, if we got a mom in that situation, especially these poor moms, you know, they struggle and they can't ever bring in a milk supply and maybe they have PCOS or they have some of these other conditions, you know, uh, the, the insufficient glandular tissue, you know, some of those issues. Right. I mean, my God, those, those those stories are just heartbreaking. These moms are doing everything they possibly can. They're, they're, they're jumping through fire, you know, in order to try to breastfeed their babies. And, you know, for, for lots of reasons, they can't. Um, you know what they need to know is the fact that the you know that they're there providing care for that baby is actually going to be the thing long term that's going to make the biggest difference. Yeah, and that's beautiful. I'm so glad. I'm I'm happy to end with that um, because it's so important. I I I don't want ever to have moms feel. Um, like they're less than, or they they failed somehow, or any of those feelings that we feel when we when we're made to think that we didn't do something the quote-unquote right way. I don't know that right. there's a right way to do anything. Um, but uh, that's that's such wonderful news. It's so good to know um, that no matter what happens, that there's always a way to connect with your kids, that there's always a yeah. way to um, to help them. And, and just, just by loving your children, you're doing the best that you can. I really well, you know, there was there was kind of a neat study they did with moms that were considered sort of high risk. Now, of course, none of them were breastfeeding. Um, and they kind of like randomized. The mothers got either one of those soft carriers or they had, you know, the you know, standard kind of baby bucket. 
Um, and what they found is just the, the fact that the moms were doing baby wearing made a huge difference in terms of like when they looked at them at say three months and then six months in terms of security of the attachment, responsive to care. Um, you know, so again, you know, okay, you can't breastfeed. What else can you do? Right. You know, the, the you know, baby wearing, infant massage, all these things are just great. You know, so it's like, okay, let's let's help you connect with that baby in other ways. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you for all you do. I really appreciate you being on the program today. Well, thank you, and thank you for inviting me. It was fun. Oh, good. I'm so glad. And we'll have you back on, on the show again then. Okay. <laughs> thank you I'm so happy much. to do it. Well, we appreciate okay, it. Okay, we'll uh, talk to you soon. Have, yeah, a, have a wonderful holiday. Yeah, you too. Yes, you thank too. you so much. <laughs> and to everybody else, thank you so much for listening today to the program. We appreciate it. If you have any ideas for the show, please email us at progressiveparentingradio at gmail.com. And uh, let us know your thoughts about who you'd like us to have on the program, who you'd like me to interview, or maybe you just read a great book and you want us to know about it, uh, progressiveparentingradio at gmail.com. We really appreciate it. If you want to see me live, I am going to be in Marina, California in January. I'm so excited. And I'll also be in San Diego in March and uh, be in Vancouver, hopefully in May. So uh, let me know if you want to get together and have coffee, progressiveparentingradio at gmail.com. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Take care of yourselves and take care of each other. If I ever do anything right, I want to be so good to this little light. If I Waking up night I wanna know